Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of Chats in the Blog Cabin, the show where I invite people into the blog cabin to chat about life. I'm Melissa and I'm your host. I'm continuing on with a series about education and today I'm talking with a musician. Um, His name is John Foley. He's got a varied background. He grew up, fell in love with the Beatles. When he was 13, he took up his first guitar, started playing, but now he also works with as a consultant for children with autism and goes into classrooms and plays music and gets kids to respond to music that way. And I really enjoyed this interview and I wanted to include it in the education segment because we're talking about children that are on different spectrums. Autism can go from people not having any type of symptoms whatsoever that you could see to a very wide range of their nonverbal. And so part of education is music and arts education. And so I really thought this was really important to include this um, because not everybody is strictly a book learner. I know my three girls are totally different learners. Um, My middle daughter, Michaela, she is very um, hands-on learning. She's my builder. She can look at something and draw it from there, but she has a really hard time with regurgitating facts back. Um, My youngest daughter, Gracie, she also is the same way. She's very creative. She's a very creative learner. She's an artist. She's a free thinker, a free spirit, and she has trouble retaining facts as well. So I wanted to include this in the education to show you that there are some ways that you can incorporate Um, music into education and learning Um, multiplication facts for one I know when my daughters all three of them were in third grade we played a recording all the time of a song about multiplication facts so I really hope you enjoy this interview with John and I can't wait for you there's a subtle surprise at the end so stick till the end and we had a live viewer comment requesting something and he did it without skipping a beat and matter of fact he played Oh, I almost told you, but I didn't. Um, matter of fact, he went into a few more um, segments on that. So I hope you really enjoyed this episode. And remember, keep listening. Welcome back to another edition of Chats from the Blog Cabin. Today we're going to be talking all about music and how music can heal you as well as help learning. And I'm very honored to have John join us today. But before we get into what you do, John, tell us who you are. Give us a little tidbit about yourself. Sure. Uh, My name is John Foley and I'm a musician, a music therapist, uh, author of two books. Uh, Most happy to be uh, dad for two great grown kids. And uh, so I'm just basically uh, shifting gears here as I uh, move out of one uh, phase of my life into the next. And uh, so I guess that's a little bit of what we could talk about today as well. Yeah. So let's first talk about music. Have you always wanted to be a musician? From early on, actually, although the funny thing was, it was the Beatles that did it for me. 
before the Beatles hit, I wasn't that interested. After the Beatles hit, I didn't think about too much else. So it really, you could pretty much draw a line there. And it happened for a lot of the other musicians I know who were my age. And then, uh, so I went through the usual bits with rock and roll bands and we had uh, uh, one of our uh, press releases said we had a record that made it all the way to the radio and all the way back. And that's about, that was about where it's at. And then, uh, so, but I continued working as a musician after that. And that led you into being a music therapist. Now tell us what yeah. a music therapist is. Oh, uh, that's a great question. I wish I knew, but uh, it basically was something like that. There are almost as many kinds of music therapy as there are music therapists. Um, specifically, I went into the um, part of it that worked with children and young adults on the autism spectrum, developmental disabilities and the rest. But I think in a more general sense, the first thing they told us uh, when I started the music therapy program was to think of the difference between music therapy and what they called therapeutic music. Now, we all put music on to relax us or to energize us for exercise or maybe to get creative while we're cooking. And that's great. We should all do even more of that. But that's music used in a therapeutic way. Music therapy looks at the effects that music can have, tries to understand them so we can use them more effectively. Like the simplest example I ever had was, if you think of how often we set something to music to help us remember. I mean, when somebody first sent the alphabet to that old French melody, mm -hmm. they understood on some level that that helps us remember that there's something in the structure of putting something with a melody and a rhythm that prints it into our brain uh, better. So now with music therapy, we look at something that we've always known and we try and understand it in a little more deeper level so we can use it more effectively. Now, was there a reason why you went to the altruism side of the therapy? Um, initially, I just went in. I didn't really know too much about it. I had done some work with geriatrics. And as part of my training, I worked in a um, an adult psychiatric ward. So we you know, pretty much had the whole, uh, whole gamut there. But I did have a chance during my training to work with some uh, some kids on the autism spectrum and something just clicked. You know, I just said, this is really something I could see myself doing for a long time. And uh, it, it was terrific. It was very rewarding and uh, I enjoyed all of it. Now, do you have to have special qualifications to be a music therapist? Yes, yes. And uh, there's a, a degree that you get. It's similar to a music education degree, what you would get to go teach music in the school system. But for music therapy, there are just little bits of things that are emphasized more on the other side. But yes, so I had had an undergraduate degree in music. And so I went back and took another um, couple of semesters to get the certification in music therapy. And it, it, it really is important because, as I said, there are a lot of ways to use music in a therapeutic sense. But to really get a music therapist perspective on things, if somebody is looking for help with that, it, it helps to have someone who's had the training, yes. So honestly, tell us about some of the experience because you said you work with kids on the autism spectrum. Right. Tell us about some of your experiences working with these kids because I think a lot of people don't realize that autism, yeah, it may be a disorder, but they're just ordinary people just like us. Well, that's it. And it's such as a reason they refer to the spectrum because there, uh, there are people there who you would not think were at all affected and then there were people you would know had some serious issues. And uh, a couple of the things I noticed is uh, that we would have people singing 
who would not speak. Mm -hmm. There are children who did not talk, but they will sing with you. And then what you try and do is you work on that to get them to say, to say things in a little bit of a sing-songy way and, uh, and a little closer to speech. And then little by little, you can get them to using something that you and I would consider more like everyday speech. It, it takes a long time and it's a long process, but that was a great thing to see. You know, you see kids who didn't want to talk, who wanted to sing. So they had to, you know, they had that thing they had to get out there and we had to work around whatever it was who was preventing them. And with same thing on the uh, physical front, worked with the physical therapists a lot because there are, just to use a almost silly example, uh, there's a divide in the middle of the brain. And a lot of the kids on the spectrum, if you hand them something and you move your hand from side to side, they will follow you to the middle and then they'll switch to their other hand because they're not getting that communication across the two hemispheres of the brain. So we came up with a thing called the elbow mambo where you have to do this. And you know, and I don't really think too often about how easy that might be, but for them, it's not. So we would have, often we would have a teacher or an aide saying, I have to get a camera. I didn't think they could do that. But partly because it's music and it's fun and they would look around, they'd see all their friends dancing and going like that. So they would join in. And so you can even work on physical therapy goals, occupational therapy goals with fingering and things like that. So yeah, we found that it just, it applied itself to just about everything. Now, did you work in a school system or did you work um, like on, as a consultant or how did you, how did that work? I worked as a consultant. I went to various schools. A lot of the schools would have their programs, separate programs for kids with developmental disabilities, which when I started actually was more heavily on the uh, cerebral palsy side of things. Mm -hmm. But now autism is so prevalent that uh, most of the kids I see have some form of autism and, uh, so with something like that, we basically, uh, I would go to the school and say, here's the program, I'm self-contained, I will bring it in on your schedule. And so I would go to schools five days a week doing that. Now, obviously with the pandemic, we weren't doing that. I was doing a lot of remote, uh, remote classes, which are a challenge too, as everybody who, anyone who's had to do something remotely will tell you. So, it's, uh, mm -hmm. so let's talk about the the first time that you saw a light bulb go off on one of the children that you were in music therapy with because you were like you were talking about just a minute ago about the kids that won't even talk and all of a sudden right. they're singing let's talk about how you felt oh oh but that again it was it was tremendously rewarding to see something like that like to see uh to use the other song as an example you would get a nonverbal child and they would come up and request the elbow mambo, like they would walk up to you and, and do that. And so I, then, you know, you've really made some connection with somebody. And then, of course, on the other end of the, the spectrum, a lot of the kids were using music to really express themselves. So, you know, um, the older kids or the kids who speak already speak well, they were trying to express themselves emotionally. And music does a great job of that, too. So they would, you know, they would be able to sing things that they might not say to you or to me. Now, did you see that once you, the music, did the teachers notice a change in the way they behaved in the classroom with the music as well, with music therapy? Yes. Yeah. And again, it was not, you know, there were no miracle cures. It's not mm -hmm. like we went in and everything was fine. But people did notice there were kids who would not sit, who will sit for music, which sort of makes sense. I mean, it's entertainment as much as anything else mm -hmm. sometimes. But yes, they would find, certainly find a, a 
an effect while we were there. And then there would be a little bit of a holdover and the next week you could you weren't necessarily starting from scratch. So it was a slow process, but we would be able to build up. And you know, the kids, uh, they would say the kids would look forward to it all week or they would use uh, you know, a little extra music time as an incentive for, uh, for doing some other chore. So uh, that, yeah, that was actually kind of nice. When I would see that some of the kids, if they did accomplish certain things, their, uh, their little treat was to be able to have an extra music class. Oh, wow. I know that that means a lot. I come from a it, it really, background as well, yeah. so okay. I, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it is, it is really rewarding. Now, what do you think, and this is a total different topic, and I didn't see you this talking for but what do you think about them cutting the arts in school now? Well, pretty much what you think, I think. <laughs> just No, it's a terrible idea. I understand that people are looking at this and they're trying to say, well, we'd like to do everything, but we can't afford it. But I just think it's such a short-sighted thing because the arts and all the rest of it have so much to do with development. And, that, you know, there's all sorts of studies that show that kids who are involved in music or art do better in school. Mm -hmm. And, they, you know, they're, they're more... Uh, openly seeking new things to do, new ideas. And yeah, I I understand that if somebody's sitting down there with a balance sheet and they say something doesn't add up, I know they think they have to cut something that seems to be non-essential, but I, I think that's wrong. Yeah. So let's talk about, so now you're into, you've, you're, you've done, got your music degree, you're a music therapist. Right. Did you play gigs on the side as well? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Partly because it's, you know, no one goes into music therapy for the money, but it's, uh, but it's, and, but also just, I love to play anyway. So I was able to play with friends on the weekends or things like that. And, you know, it was a little low key. Uh, the work with the band had involved traveling and it, it was, that was a real full-time commitment, which was fun at the time. But uh, one of the reasons I had left that was we had to, uh, you know, two young kids here and I didn't want to do that. But playing on the weekends was great. Yeah, I did. I suppose we probably would call it classic rock now because it's old. But at the time I was playing it first, it was it was just rock and roll. I love that classic rock because you said now it's old. But yeah. actually, I grew up around classic rock, too. So I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah, so what, I, kind I, of, what kind of music did you play? Um, particular ones? I'm, yeah, the basically the rock and roll from the 1960s to the 1980s for the most part. It's not like I wouldn't play anything later, but I mean those were the the decades that I probably related to the most. Those are the ones where I played and listened to that music more often than anything else. And uh, and yeah, we would find that it wasn't just people our age. You know, people would bring their kids who were big Beatles fans or really liked the the Beach Boys or the Rolling Stones or something. So. And then, you know, we would find that, you know, you can go anywhere in the world and play a Motown song and, you know, everybody wants to, <laughs> to sing, everybody wants to dance. So it's, it's great in that sense. It's not really just for our age group. Now you're a new musician. So where did your love of writing, obviously, because you've got two books come right. from? Um, I think it, I just love to read. And I would bet that everybody who loves to read secretly thinks they might want to write as well. So, um, I think with something like that, uh, I just always thought it might be fun. And uh, I never really had done much. I did a couple of articles for uh, professional journals and things like that. But I had never really done too much. And I, and I sat down to write an article on human response to music, our reactions to things, how our reactions change emotionally, intellectually. And I started to write. 
and I kept on writing and I couldn't stop. And eventually I had that. So, <laughs> and, uh, and it, it was book length and I said, okay, I'm, it's, it's a book. It's not an article anymore. So, uh, so yeah, that one started out really pretty narrow. And then I went back into the history and science of music and to illustrate each point, I bring you an example from something that I had seen myself either playing or as a music therapist. And, uh, so uh, yeah, I was very happy with the with the way that came out, and uh, so I said, okay, well, maybe you should continue to write. And so for a long time, I really couldn't come up with something else. And then I was doing an article for uh, Renaissance magazine, which is mostly history books thing, and I was writing on the history of music and healing, which was very uh, probably first really studied in a mm -hmm. systematic way during the Renaissance. And when I was doing my research, I came across this phenomenon, which happened hundreds of times over hundreds of years, where people would have these spontaneous outbreaks of dancing, uncontrolled dancing. I mean, dancing longer than you think a human being could stand up. And it was just, you know, now it's considered a mass psychogenic episode, if you read the, the literature on it. But at, at first, of course, they thought it was possession or some, you know, some sort of haunting or something. And so I thought that was a pretty interesting idea. So I put that into the article. The article came out and I pretty much forgot about it until I was going to try my hand at a novel. And for 20 years, I'd been thinking, I'd love to write a novel set in Tudor England. And I think uh, anybody who likes to read history is probably a temptation to think, well, what would my life have been back in those times? Mm -hmm. And at the time I started to do this, I was a traveling musician. So I said, well, I wonder what would happen to a traveling musician in the days of Henry VIII. And I started to, to get this story going and I liked it and I was working it and working it. And then all of a sudden one day I sat down and the whole bit about what was then called the dancing plague, this dancing mania popped up as one of the, um, one of the little subplots in the book early on. And all of a sudden, all of the other themes in the book started to, to dovetail. And so the, uh, so the book became The Dancing Beast, which is uh, the name that one of the characters has when he sees how this mob of people starts to act as one, almost as one thing, you know. And uh, so uh, it, got, uh, it got away from me again, and it just it became an adventure, it became a romance, it became a mystery, it became all these things. And uh, and I got to the end and I said, oh, I like this book. And so it's uh, it's been out for a while. And I was really hesitant to try my friends over in England on it because I thought they would say, well, this is not your history. What are you doing? You've got a lot of cheek. But, <laughs> uh, but my friends uh, at the, and not just friends, people over there, uh, according to Amazon UK, got some very nice uh, mentions. Uh, so we're, uh, we're selling on two continents, uh, and, uh, but I was very happy that the people in England didn't think I was uh, messing around with their history. So basically it started as a research project and then you just decided to get it into a work of fiction. Yeah. And it was funny. And originally they were two separate things. I did the article for the history magazine. It was published. And a couple of years later, I was starting what I thought was just this little Tudor English adventure story. And then all of a sudden the, uh, the bit about the dancing plague, which the character calls the dancing beast, pops up, and I say, "Well, that's a perfect little way to inject some some more action in here." You know, we've already had our tavern brawl, we've already had our escape from the burning building, and now I, I don't want it just to be talk, talk, talk. Then I need something else to happen, 
And I remembered the research I'd done on the dancing plague. And I said, that's absolutely correct. It's historically accurate for the period. And it really did fit in with the other themes that the book was, uh, was working on. I just, so you have to be a lover of history as well, at least music history, right? Well, yes. Well, and actually that's funny. That's how it worked because I'm not maybe across the board a history buff, but when I was in college, I was lucky. I had two professors who were real fans of what is usually called early music. Anything before Bach, it's, it's sort of like early music, you know, and unless you specialize in that, they don't spend a lot of time on it. But I had two professors who were really uh, interested in it and they sent us off on this, you know, this great adventure looking for all of these uh, uh, concerts by musicians playing music from the 15th, 16th centuries. And I just got caught up in it. It had this sort of magical sense to it. You know, it was sort of like transporting me back. And then I saw, you know, I happened to see a couple of Shakespeare productions. And uh, so the whole, the whole thing sort of worked, uh, you know, worked itself together for me. And I really just got attracted to the period. And I started reading the history and going back and doing a little more of the other research. But yeah, music was the music was the door into that as well. So do you have any plans to write any more books? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I was pleasantly surprised uh, that some of the early readers of The Dancing Beings um, said, I have to find out what happens to these guys So uh, and gals. So, the, I mean, it's a standalone novel, so it's a self-contained story. If anybody wants to read it, they can, uh, you know, they can enjoy it without having to commit. You don't have that. But I was feeling the same thing at the end of the book. I want to know what happens to these people in the next phase of their lives. So I don't think the thing was, was finished for very long before I started on the sequel. So I have at least one more book in the, the Dancing Beast series uh, in, the, in the works currently being written. And uh, I'm doing, I have done some video trailers for the thing where I use some period artwork and I uh, compose some music to go along with it. So there's, um, I see the website down there. So anyone who would like to go to the website, uh, there uh, you scroll down the first page and there's a video trailer. It's five minutes of uh, mostly Renaissance art and some music that I wrote. And I got some great narration. Uh, there's a woman who lives around here uh, she's from New York State, but she has a, a fabulous English accent. And so she's reading por uh, portions of the book with the artwork and the music. And it's uh, it's a lot of fun. And we have two more in the works right now. So where do you get your inspiration for writing? I know you said that you got the inspiration for this particular one by the article and the dancing right. plague. But right. where, like you said, there was a fire, there was other things happening in this book. Where did you get the inspiration from? Well, that, see, that's a funny thing. I've been since to writers' workshops and things like that. And I was at this one, and this woman was talking about how she writes. She says, I sit down, I have a timeline, and I, and I see at which point my character is going to go here and meet this person. They're going to go there and meet that person, and that's how she writes. Then she goes back in and puts in the dialogue and the scenery and the rest. And... Um, so I was so far from that. I said, geez, maybe I'm doing this wrong. I sat down with my first three characters and the um, sort of and the way that they were thrown together. And I didn't know where it was going from there. And then one person would one character would make an observation. And I'd say, I say, oh, OK, then that may be what's happening. So I actually discovered the story in the, the same sequence that the reader does. When I started out, I basically had the first 
chapter or so blocked out in my mind. And everything else was somebody saying this. And I would say, well, maybe that's true. And, and so I would explore that. And then certain things just came up in that I wasn't trying to be timely, but some things are just universal. For example, I was bringing in a part about how Henry VIII had banished the gypsies, the Romani people from England at the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and we, we hear about people getting banished all over the place nowadays, but I, at the time I was just putting it in because it was historically part of the period. And one of the characters, I don't want to give away too much, but uh, one of the characters is suspected of having Romani gypsy heritage. And that makes mm -hmm. trouble for her because there's prejudice. And so 500 years ago, we had the same stuff we were dealing with. So yeah, the little things like that would just suggest themselves. And, you know, all of a sudden you take what was a historical fact, like the expulsion of the gypsies, and then it becomes somebody's emotional reality when you realize mm -hmm. that this isn't something that takes up two lines in the history book. This is a whole people who were expo expelled and everybody who was suspected of being partially of that ancestry had to deal with that as well. So it was funny. It, it often starts out with just a little fragment of something and then it becomes somebody's reality. It becomes a character's emotional reality. So how long did it take you to write this particular book? Uh, that's a good question. You know, I should have written down, and for some reason, the program I was using at the time doesn't tell you when you started. But I would say it probably took probably took about a year. Of, of Usually I would get up in the morning, I get up for everyone else, and I would make some coffee and sit down and start to write. And the only thing I had that was close to a rule was that I wouldn't throw anything out till the next day. So even if I went off on what seemed like a tangent, I wouldn't wouldn't delete it. I would say, let me let it percolate. And I'd come back to it the next day. And more often than not, I would say, I can see where that's headed. This is telling, you know, the character is actually trying to show us that she or he is more uh, involved than we thought. So I, you know, it was funny. I would I would do that. I would read a speech back and say, nah, they wouldn't say that. And but I would not delete it. And the next day I'd read back and say, well, you know, if they did say that, then you have this. And so the plot advances each time by, you know, just by being open to the fact that characters are like people, you know, they surprise us the way people surprise us. Yeah. Hmm. Do you think you'll ever write a book that has to deal with um, music therapy and there's a character that's autistic in there since that's something that's that you deal with a lot? Yeah, that would be funny. That would be sort of like the exact uh, middle point, midpoint between the two uh, the two books. So you're talking about a work of fiction where there would be a, a mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. yeah, that would be a challenge because I think in a way, I think the only way to do it right would, would be to include the viewpoint of the autistic person. And mm -hmm. you know, I have read a bunch of books by autistic people just to see if I can get a sense of, you know, how they see the world. Because I would figure from my point of view, from working with them, I wanted to see what they saw from their side of the lens. So that would be a real challenge. I'm glad you mentioned that. I have to, I have to see if I, I feel up to something like that. Because it would be a nice course to write something from the standpoint of the people, the teachers, or the therapists who work with the kids. And that could be really, uh, really good as well. But the, the real challenge, I think, might be that, to see if you can write it from the standpoint of the, the person with autism. There's some, you know, there's some really good books, fiction and nonfiction, written from standpoint of characters who are 
uh, either on the spectrum or suspected to be. I mean, it's a most, I think one of the earliest ones I read was the curious case of the dog in the night. And they never tell you that the narrator is autistic as such, but you're kind of, you're gleaning it as you, uh, as you read. And then of course, there are a lot of uh, books, including books by Temple Grandin, books by people who themselves live with autism. And they tell us a bit of what it's like from their side. So yeah, that would actually, that would be a great challenge. Because yeah. I, I was, as you were talking about autistic and writing, uh, there's a blogger that her, she has a, a child that has, her oldest daughter has Down syndrome. And she actually has written a couple of books where her main character in the book has Down syndrome. Right. And it just kind of mm -hmm. helps to not, maybe not normalize, but to help mm -hmm. get the perspective of the, the outsider's perspective on what's going on so that they know that they're just normal people, just like us. Mm -hmm. They were just, God made them special. Right. I know. I think that's a, a, a great idea. And anytime we can do something that opens up our, um, our viewpoint, to theirs. I mean, that's basically what fr what fiction does anyway. The idea in fiction, we're supposed to imagine something that is not our reality. We see characters doing things that we wouldn't do. And uh, so, yeah, I think anything with, especially with people who are somehow marked as different, anything that kind of makes them a bigger part of a bigger mainstream is a great idea. Yeah, because we need to see that, you know, there's a reason with autism, they refer to the spectrum. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's not, here's people with autism. It's just, there's a line, keeps going on forever. And over on the one end of the line are the people we don't think have issues. And on the far end are the people who very obviously do. But most of us, just about everybody is somewhere in that continuum in the middle. And I think that's, you know, that's a great test for fiction. If you can really write something from another person's point of view. I think I asked you this earlier, but remind me again, why did you get involved with autism in particular? Well, I, uh, we started to, and I think we may have veered uh -huh. off, but, uh, but yes, uh, no, I had a, uh, I had a, as part of my training, we worked with different groups. We worked with uh, geriatrics, we worked with adult psychiatric patients, and then we worked with uh, kids with disabilities. And that was just, I had a, you know, I just had a real connection there. I really liked um, you know, I liked the work. I thought it just, something just seemed to, uh, you know, to mesh, but I really had had no experience. A lot of the people that I ended up working with, teachers and, uh, and aides and the rest, had themselves children who were on the autism spectrum. A lot of, a lot of special ed teachers have kids who are in special ed. I mean, you can understand why that would be. It makes you interested. It makes you involved. Mm -hmm. But uh, I had had no, I had had no experience myself with uh, anyone really on the spectrum. And yet, you just fell in love with them as you were going through your career in that that particular group. Yeah, exactly. It just you know something just happened, and I said, okay, this I really, really feel like you know something is being done here. I really like feel like a connection is being made, and it was also a tremendous amount of fun. You know, it's just. Uh, you know, to, to sit down with a bunch of kids who are in school and not necessarily happy to be there. And all of a sudden they're happy to be there. I mean, that would be fun regardless of what you do, you know? So, uh, yeah, but it is interesting because a lot of the people that I knew who work with special ed themselves have someone in the family, you know, either a child or a sibling, but I had almost no contact with it at all. It was just another world for me. Wow. So let's take, let's, I just want to kind of pick your brain. What does it normally look like when you go into a classroom and you're dealing, and you're sitting down with the children? 
tell us how you, because I know there's a lot of them that they're like off on all the different places. How do you oh. get their attention? How do you keep them engaged and everything? Yeah, well, and that's that's all kids everywhere. So I mean, that part okay. is is not any different really uh but usually what we do is we would have um especially if it's kids where i would see them every week at a certain time and so you, you try and establish a routine because especially mm -hmm. with people on the autism spectrum routine and predictability is uh, is really really important i know a lot of people remember the dustin hoffman character in rain man the autistic mm -hmm person then he would get upset if he couldn't watch his television show at 3 30 or whatever and i mean there's no typical autistic person but that is very common with autism and that kind of thing so we would try and have a pattern you know we would start and we would start with we had a greeting song so that was always the one we would do and then uh, you know then we would go through certain things and uh, but yeah initially getting somebody to um, to pay attention who doesn't want to, I would develop these little songs where it would require a response. So I would play something on the guitar with a little bit of a beat and hold out a tambourine, say, and have them imitate that beat back to me. You know, I had written a song called Crash Boom Bang. So I would play one, two, three on the guitar, hold out the tambourine, and they would get bang, 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 one, two, three with that same rhythm. So even with the nonverbal kids, you're communicating you have, you have made a statement you get a response and then we would vary that so that they would you know i could see that they were tuning into the music and uh you know a lot of the things it's interesting a lot of things work that you would not think would have anything to do with it but i was looking at at a videotape one time and just even the motion of somebody's arm going like this it's very very fascinating mm -hmm. They found it fascinating and strings on the guitar that we don't even notice. They're doing this little vibrating thing that we don't see, but a lot of people on the autism spectrum. Mm. Do, you know? So it's this, this magic, you know, it's this sort of a light show for them. And, uh, you know, just to see something visual because a lot of people on the autism spectrum are very, very visual. So we would try and do as much as possible things that would engage them uh, visibly first and then bring the other in which is where um, doing the remote classes, as I have this past year, is a lot harder because it's much harder to engage someone. So I would do little silly things like, you know, put my hand up over the, the camera or things because you just need something to uh, help them engage at first. I'm glad you said that because that was actually my next question coming up is how has COVID and the pandemic yeah. changed well, the way you approach it? Yeah, it's made a huge difference. And part of the thing is that we would do things, I would have kids playing basic instruments. And of course, we can't do that long distance because uh, one of the other things that becomes an issue, which you know I never would have thought of before last year, that there's usually in a lot of these things, there is uh, a second or two time lag. So, you know, if you want to say, you know, if you're working with very small kids and somebody singing, if you're happy and you know, it, clap your hands. Well, two seconds later, somebody's doing that. And it's just, it does throw things off. So I do have to, uh, I have to adapt for that. I have flashcards where they're learning to clap rhythms. So instead of having them clap along with me, I hold up the flashcard and I say, count to four and play this pattern. And that's how I can tell if they've actually learned a rhythm. But yeah, up till this time last year, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. So, uh, and so yes, yeah, so it, it was interesting. So. <laughs> 
So how much harder has it been to navigate? Because I know that it's hard for actually parents with mm-hmm. with kids that are on the autism spectrum to oh, sure, keep kids sure. engaged with, but now with you're adding the autism spectrum to keep them engaged on something that's on the, you know, the computer all the time. Yeah, well, that's the other thing. Yes, because when you're in in person with somebody, you're you're there. You can you can do this. You can get in front of their eyes and do all the rest of this. And so a lot of that stuff is just out of the, you know, out of the toolbox right now. So I just have to worry about trying to do as many things as I can to engage the students, to adapt the things that I used to do to this new world. And, uh, you know, and it's tough because some of the classes, of course, are in classrooms and there's all the distractions of a classroom, or if the child is at home, well, they're they're at home and there are plenty of distractions at home too. So, yeah. So it's a it's new challenges, which is fun, you know, to be you know doing something for a long time and then all of a sudden, as I guess lots of people we know, the things they do, they have to do differently. Mm-hmm. I had a, one interview a while back with the parenting expert that actually said that if this pandemic had happened twenty years ago. We wouldn't have been, the internet wouldn't have been able to accommodate everybody else. Sure. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I didn't think about that. I guess probably because I, you know, I don't think that um, anybody back in those days would have even thought to to use it. Although I guess they would, yes, they would have tried to use it and overloaded the, <laughs> the circuits and we all would have been out of luck. But yeah, no, it certainly is good that we do have this. I'm not the world's biggest um technology uh, person but uh but yes this has certainly been a real lifesaver this past year so what else is up next for you well at this point um well immediately as a matter of fact um we're uh we're, as i said we're finishing up two more music videos for the the dancing beast which will have uh original music and uh, and artwork and some narration from uh, from my friend and so that, and we're going to start to do that because we're getting ready to move the promotion for the book into higher gear. Um, I'm already talking to the school systems about how we're going to try and adapt for next year, some combination of in-person learning and remote. And, uh, and also it's, uh, it's coming back up, at least up here to season four outdoor music again. So I will be able to get out on the weekends and uh, start playing for people again. And that will be great. So I'm looking forward to that. So what kind of instruments do you play? I'm primarily a guitar player. When we do, when I do the recordings here, I have a little multi-track recorder. I can play a couple of different guitar parts. I'll strum an acoustic part and then play an electric guitar on a guitar part on top. I'll play some bass guitar and you can put them all on a thing and mix, uh, mix them up. And I have a friend who's a very good drummer. And so I send him the files and he, he listens to that. And he plays his drum part and we mix them together. So, I, yeah, I certainly miss sitting in a room with musicians and, uh, and playing. And I'm looking forward to at least sitting on somebody on, you know, on a deck someplace and playing with musicians again. But yeah, now, but you, primarily a guitar player. Yeah. Now, where are you located at? I'm in a place called Hewitt, New Jersey, which is um, probably about an hour and a half outside of New York City. Just a little bit to the north and to the west. Okay. Do they have mass mandates there? We no? do. Yeah, we do. And actually, I've at least where we are here right now, I see very few people uh, flouting the the 
suggestions. So uh, every once in a while you see someone who's trying to make a point and, you know, it's just <laughs> after a while. But yes, we do have it. And how about down by you? Yes, I'm in North Carolina and we definitely have it. But a lot of people down the South, don't, they think it's a hoax. So yeah. they don't want to wear the mask. They don't want to get the vaccine. They don't want to do this. They don't want to do that. And I'm like, you know. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's hard. You know, and I understand because it's it's attached to so many other things. It's not just uh, facts. It's It's culture. It's identity. If you say, well, I identify with this group. Or my church does not believe, you know, and that's that's kind of hard to go up against when you're just sitting there with a chart and a graph. Yeah. So yeah, because you know there are hearts rule our heads a lot of the time. So uh, yeah, but it's no, it's it's difficult. It isn't bad right here, and we're in a somewhat rural area, so it's not as bad either. But uh, yeah, fortunately, when I do, you know, talk to my friends from New York City, you know, people there are pretty good about that. Well, I was wondering because you said you're going to play outdoor, but you're yeah. going to have to wear a mask when you're playing as well. Are you going to be socially distanced or? Well, we will probably set up socially distant and we put the mask on when you walk off the stage to go, you know, uh, to go down into the audience or something like that. Uh, yeah, I'm assuming, you know, because we're uh, vaccinations are coming along here, but they're you know, nowhere near universal. And so, yeah, so probably. Um, we can. I've seen people already out there playing with a mask. Singing with a mask is a little tough, so we will probably just put the microphone <laughs> six feet apart. So, do you sing as well? I do. Yeah, I'm. I've always been more of a guitar player, but you can always find songs that are fun to sing that people like to sing along with that don't necessarily re require a great voice. So, I, I tend to do those. I'll do a song. So, if I'm out. Like I was, um, was t talking to my brother the other day and I said, you know, if you're out there in front of a group of people and you start to play Wagon Wheel, you don't have to sing. They're going to sing the rest of the song mm -hmm. for you. <laughs> so I tend to do songs. I, you know, I like to sing, but I tend to do songs that everybody else is going to want to sing along with. And as far as the rock and roll bands that was in the things, I was more of a of an accompanist. I was the guitar player in the band. So, uh, yeah, so that was always my or my role. So let's talk about in the very beginning of the interview, you said you switched from being on the road all the time because you mm -hmm. had two small children. Right. Yeah. A lot of musicians don't do that. A lot of musicians yeah. continue on. So what made you flip that switch and say? Yeah, I do. And God bless so many of my musical heroes who stayed out there and, you know, and, and did wonderful things out there. And I'm really glad that they did. Um, but I just found for myself, I didn't really have this, body of songs that I really had to have the world here. You know, I, I really liked playing and singing, but I can do that from here. So uh, I think if I had this real need, I'm a, you know, you're, you're in North Carolina. I'm a huge James Taylor fan. Mm -hmm. I think if I had James Taylor's talent and body of work and all the rest of that, I'd say, oh, you know, I really should be out there and it's difficult for my family, but I'll, I'll do the best I can. And people do, you know, I mean, I know lots of people who, raised children and did all the rest of that. And usually it requires a, a very patient spouse. And, uh, but I was just finding for myself that the music was not so overwhelming that I couldn't do anything else, you know? So mm -hmm. and especially when I found a related field. So I was still out there doing something musical, feeling like I was, uh, you know, a, a musician and then playing on, on the weekends. But then, you know, I was at home, home in time to meet the school bus as often as not. And I think that's really what it came down to. If I had felt I had this 
body of music that really had to be out there, I would have, I think it would have been torn, you know, because you, you feel it's something that you're trying to bring to the world and really glad so many of my heroes did that. But I realized for me that that was not mm -hmm. the driving force. And then so when we had to, you know, we had two uh, formerly small children and, uh, and it just, and that just, for me, that just kind of took over. I mean, that was, that was where I wanted to be. So, you know, we had, a, you know, and uh, so, yeah, I never, you know, I never felt like, oh, I should be this, I should be that. I was very, very happy to, to make the switch when I did. So you didn't have any regrets of saying, I'm not going to. No, no, I think, you know, I, I, there were times where I wish I was playing more often, but there were, you know, there, we used to call up, I would talk to some of my old friends and we would try and scare each other by saying, hey, let's get the band back together and get an old van and people would go, ah. <laughs> no, no, I, I love the music, but yeah, that, that part of it, that, I didn't miss that part at all. Yeah, you talked about musical heroes. You said Beatles was one yeah. of your. So let's talk about some of your musical heroes. Oh, sure. Um, well, I would say it really came down to that. I mean, the, it was probably, you know, certainly everybody else was happening around that time. But it really, it had to be the Beatles. And I can't for the life of me figure out why I was not interested in music before then. And all of a sudden just absolutely had to have it. But certainly, you know, the Beatles and at that time was everything else that was coming along, Rolling Stones, Beach Boys. Mm -hmm. And then you had all the great um, R&B records, you know, you had Motown and the Southern stuff with Aretha Franklin. And, and mm -hmm. it just, it was such a fabulous time to be listening to music. And we played it, we played it all. You know, we tried to play Motown songs. We tried to play Rolling Stones. And it was just, uh, it was fun. And because we didn't have, you were talking about the internet before, because we didn't have the internet, we had to try and figure things out. You know, there were, there would be books of music, but they weren't terribly uh, accurate as far as rock and roll was going. Mm -hmm. So you would have to sit down and play a record over and over and try and get every little note. And it was like being part of a, of a secret society. You know, if you knew a little something, you would pass it on to someone else. And it was just this, uh, this fabulous time to be you know to be involved in music and then again uh, probably well more than a few years later but when James Taylor and those people came along I really really related strongly to that part so you know and then so I started playing a lot more acoustic guitar and the rest and they were uh, you know we had Joni Mitchell and Carol King and all the rest of these mm -hmm. things and, uh, and as a matter of fact uh, two friends of mine and I just before the pandemic we had put together some programs and one was uh, a whole an hour of British invasion music starting and ending with the Beatles. And the other, we did a, a Carole King and James Taylor uh, tribute, an hour of their music, the things that they have done mm. separately and together. And we would go to libraries and play those in concert. And that was great. I'm looking forward to doing that again when things open up. Wow. Now, how old were you when you first picked up your first guitar? Um, 13. 13. 13. So yeah. So, and then, and I was horrible, absolutely terrible. <laughs> well, it's funny because most of the people I knew who picked it up and did well with it either had a little bit more of a knack. Some, some people just pick up anything quicker than mm -hmm. other people. And some people had that drive where they would just sit and practice for hours and hours. And I didn't have either. The only thing I had going was that I just didn't quit. You know, I just kind of came back to it every day and slogged along. And I got fired from my first band twice. 
They kicked me out because I was terrible. And but they had to keep taking me back because they were terrible too. And I was only slightly more terrible than they were. So, <laughs> so but and the funny thing is, I'm thinking back when I was and I put a little bit of that story in the uh, in this, <laughs> and I was thinking, now how horrible could it be at 13 to have your friends throw you out of a band? And that must have been a terrible thing, but I didn't care. I just wanted to play. Right. So when we found out that they stunk too, so I said, all right, let's all stink together. And we, we finally got a little better. But yeah, it's I guess music is a great force if it can do that, right? If it can take a 13-year-old and make you completely forget the fact that your friends have rejected you. So uh, yeah, I, you know, I, it must have been such a powerful thing that maybe kept going back. And now you know, if I see any of those people now, we're still on good terms so you're still on good terms i love that after all that so uh, but yeah it was it was a funny thing it was just who knows you know something just clicks and you find this thing that's uh that's speaking to you and yes and it was really pretty funny because i really was not a quick study by any stretch of the imagination and um, and i didn't have a tremendous amount of patience when it came to practicing but i just stayed with it and i would give that advice to anybody probably with anything mostly music because that's what i know a little more of. but if you just sit down every day you will stink a little bit less after one <laughs> and uh and that was it and i just found it really rewarding you know I've, all of a sudden you hit something that and you get that little glimmer of light it says oh wait a minute that sounds like what i heard on that record and sometimes that'll you know that'll keep you going for a day and uh, that was what i found was you know was really really important with that it just there was something in there that really connected and really made it worth the work. And then, you know, it just didn't become, didn't become work after a while. It became the thing that you wanted to do. And, and so we were sitting there and, and it was fun because in a band, you can sit there with your friends and you can um, have all sorts of interesting adventures. And, uh, and fortunately you uh, still stay friends with these people after a while. And, uh, but it is fun because it, you know, you get all these little, interactions with people and uh, it definitely shows you a lot about human nature to be in a band with somebody so we found uh, we found that a lot of you know friendships were tested with things like that because there's a there's a certain amount of pressure and uh, but for the most part everybody seemed to come through it okay okay we do have a question from a viewer it says oh, can you play okay. a little something for us john oh um <laughs> okay let's see um how about this? This is a little bit unorthodox here, but let's let's try this. Um, so um, since we're, we're in product placement, um, so we have this. The Dancing Beast is the book. And uh, the new video that's coming out, I have a theme which was based on a piece of 16th century music. And, um, and I decided to do something really strange with it. And it became the theme, and it's now the theme for the, for the Dancing Beast. And so let me show you if I can. Uh, let's see. A little bit of the original piece. This was a 16th century piece um, for the, the lute, the forerunner of the modern guitar. And when I was in college many, many years ago, uh, there was this very nice piece from 16th century. must have been a little dance tune. And 
I would practice that and I would say, okay, it was a very nice little piece. It's a little tra-la-la if you're not careful. So, uh, so I didn't really play too much after a while, but then I was thinking if you put it in a minor key, you, you get all of a sudden becomes a little more maybe mysterious sounding and you can do something with it. You can do, uh, Like that then all of a sudden became a little more mysterious it became a little more like the theme for the dancing beast and let's see something there which instead of that little happy major key like that becomes something a little more spooky I would take something like that and a lot of the music that we used on the videos for the dancing beast was that some of it was based on uh, actual pieces from 16th century and uh, so I'm trying to think of let's see a couple of the other uh, see oh this is a lot of fun I should play a little bit of while we're here um, the famous elbow mambo that I use with the uh, special ed classes all the time and uh, Again, it was really nice because I would have non-verbal non kids coming up and requesting a song. And that one would go, do the elbow mambo, do the elbow mambo, do the elbow mambo and you stop. Do the elbow mambo, do the elbow mambo, do the elbow mambo and you stop. And the kids would laugh and the teachers would laugh. But the great thing was that some, you know, some real work was getting done as far as the uh, physical therapy side of things. So I would, uh, you know, I play some of these things really just for, for my own enjoyment, and some of them I do targeted to the kids, to the audience. I love that. Oh. Now, if there is one person that you could, one musical hero, I'm putting you on the spot here, that oh, yeah. you could play with, who would that be? Oh, geez, that would be tough. Um, I'm trying to think because basically with a lot of my musical heroes, they're playing the part that I would play. So like, um, I, you know, I certainly would love to have uh, to work with James Taylor, but he's already doing the part that I would be playing. So I'd have to do something else. That'd be, it'd be curious. I think, um, um, yeah, that's a good question. I'll have to see if I can think about something like that. Or I suppose if I were playing with uh, James Taylor or somebody, I would come up with some different part for it. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits and uh, so some things like that and and actually when I was playing the uh, the little bit of the uh, Dancing Beast theme I remember thinking boy if I had Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull here along to play that float uh, on that that would be a great thing to have Jethro Tull playing along on so um, probably a lot of them it would depend on the day I think yeah and that the person that requested is margie she says thank you music speaks louder than words about she's Especially the one my words anyway if that's <laughs> what you're going to say hello margie how have you been hope you're all okay yeah 
And uh, yeah, actually, if, yeah, Mark, yes. Okay, we won't, won't uh, give out any last names, but yes, her husband and I were in several bands together years ago. So. Yeah, you have a, quite a few comments. Let's just go oh, through. It says, great, hello, great. another Radar Ranger has joined the blog. Hi, John, elbow bump. <laughs> just from Bob. Right? Yeah, the, um, yeah, the Radar Rangers were the, the kids band that did the original recording of Do the Elbow Mumbo. So obviously, you said that you guys were still together. You were still friends, so right? Yeah, <laughs> yep, the, one, the ones of us who are still here are still on speaking terms, so that's good. <laughs> I see if, if this Barry here is the Barry I think it is. Hello, Barry. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> so, and and then, uh, yeah, so no, it is good because it, it's very interesting. I'm sure lots of people have experiences in work situations where you know, there's personal mm -hmm. issues and frictions and things. But uh, and those are often worse in a band. But I do have found that the people I worked with, you know, even when we butted heads during the, the time of the band, uh, we're usually still still on speaking terms these years later. OK, yeah. well, do you have another request from Margie? She said, uh, Larry requests chain trains passing in the night. Right now, it, it, Margie is uh, is being silly is what it is. Now, her husband and I were in the band. And it was essentially a vanity project for a, a, a manager's girlfriend. And one of the songs that they decided she sang very well was this song called Trains Passing in the Night, which, first of all, is a horrible song. And second of all, everybody even closely associated with the band can sing the entire song, even all these years later, even though we hated it. Matter of fact, I'm sure if I called my wife in from the next room and asked her she could sing Trains Passing in the Night. And so could Margie. Horrible song that it was, so yeah, absolutely awful song. But no, I will not play that. Sorry, Marge. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm gonna go have to look up that song since you yeah. said it's a horrible song. But that yeah, that one I think safely uh, is is probably off the uh, airwaves here because that one never that one never made it. We did record it, but I I hope no one ever heard it. So. <laughs> now our time is almost up oh, is there okay. anything that you want to leave us one little last nugget that you want to leave us with um i would say just that um i you know i guess you have a pretty diverse audience there and so one thing i would say just uh is i think we should all keep ourselves open to trying things i mean if you if you think you can play an instrument you should play an instrument if you think you would like to write something I mean, everybody should write something. We all have, you know, everybody's got at least one book in them, I think. You know, you can pick something in your life and, and write that book or, uh, you know, or paint or something. I just think this stuff is so much more than just a hobby. You know, it's really our connection to the world in a, a bigger way. You know, in a, uh, I mean, depending on how people like the word spiritual, it, it's a loaded word, but it certainly connects us to the world in a much bigger way than than a hobby. You know, it's not just a pastime. So I think I think everybody should find that thing they do. You should mm -hmm. you should cook, you should garden, you should do something with that real joy. And I, you know, I hope everybody can. And where can people find you at? Okay, the R, I think we had it down there someplace. Um, the uh, the website for the book, for, there it is, the Dancing Beast book. And we are setting up a blog, so I will happily reply to uh, uh, anybody who would, uh, you know, who wants to leave a message there. I am on Facebook under uh, John Foley. And unfortunately, there are about 
30 or 40 John Foley's on there. Uh, I'm the one in Hewitt, New Jersey, and the little uh, thumbnail photo actually has the cover of the book. So that would do that. But yes, anyone who wanted to get in touch um, by way of Facebook or uh, uh, Twitter, uh, the Twitter ha is hashtag at Dancing Beast. And uh, so, yes, I'm more than happy to talk to anybody about any of these things. And uh, I really appreciate, uh, appreciate you having me on the show. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for coming on. I had fun. You're actually our okay. our first actual musical musical one. The oh. parenting expert that I was talking about earlier, he was saying that he was learning ukulele during COVID. So he, I put him on the spot at the end. I wasn't going to put you on the spot, but I, oh, I guess we can thank Margie for that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I got Margie, as they say, she has quite a sense of humor. So, it's a, yeah, no, I'm glad you did. And actually, uh, let's see, the weekend, uh, speaking of ukuleles, that's another thing everybody should have one of. Every child should be given a ukulele at birth. And uh, let's see. And we can all play. Uh, we can sing our way out on this one. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and for you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Anyway, so yes, everybody should get one of these too. So, all right. Um, and just because I, we need this stuff in our lives, you know, probably more now than ever. But, you know, even uh, even when things go back to what might be a, have been called normal, I think we need this stuff in our lives. You know, we need to get out and, and do something like that. We but do. yes, uh, but... I, I, if I'd known, I probably would have put in a better microphone <laughs> to the computer. I hope the sound quality was good. <laughs> well, nobody's complaining that they can't hear us, so I'm assuming okay. the sound okay. quality is great. <laughs> right. Well, that's why I always say people say, you know, how do you sing? I say, I sing loud. So <laughs> I love that. Mm. So, John, I want to thank you again. And when you get thank that trailer put up, mm -hmm. let me know, and I'd be happy to put it up on the show for maybe a commercial oh. in between to, for your books. Great. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I had a great time. I hope you did too. Yes, I sure did. I love being serenaded. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. So guys, we will see you on the next chat from the blog cabin. Bye. Okay. Everybody tune in again. Thanks. Bye-bye. Y'all, I really, really enjoyed this episode with John. Um, I will put the links to his both his books in the show notes as well as his um, website information. Um, this was such a great, great interview and I'm so glad that we had live viewer comments coming on. Um, a lot of interactions during this interview. I would say, guys, pop in a Beatles song. Pop into one of your favorite songs. If you're a parent, pop in the song. Even if you're a parent of a baby, pop in a, something in the music, in your music player, in your CD, on your iPod, on your iPhone, go to Spotify, go to Pandora, go wherever you listen to this podcast and pop on a piece of music and watch how your children react to music. It's amazing. Um, even um, people that are hearing impaired can feel the vibration of the music of the of the movement of the notes being played so i really really hope you really enjoyed this interview as much as i enjoyed being a 
heart of the interview. Basically, I just set, let him sit back and talk. So I want to thank you so much for being part of the podcast family. Please like, leave a review, leave a rating, um, wherever you listen to on. If you want to hop over on the YouTube and see the live, see the in-person YouTube one, it's Chats from the Blog Cabin. And subscribe if you're there. Comment, tell me how I'm doing. So guys, I really want to thank you for being a part of the podcast family, like I said already. And most importantly, be blessed. And remember... Keep chatting.